A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Lore of Us podcast, where the lore hounds, your guides to a fungal apocalypse. I'm John. And I'm David. And this is our coverage of the HBO original series, The Last of Us. In this podcast, we'll be discussing our general thoughts about this episode before getting into our in-depth scene-by-scene breakdown of Season 1, Episode 4, Please Hold to My Hand. Be sure to stick around at the end of the podcast for programming notes about us and our podcasting peers. One of our favorite things about podcasting is getting feedback. We love to hear fan theories, um, pickups on details that we might have missed, and we just like to hear what folks think about the episodes and the season overall. So you can send us feedback in two ways. You could email us to tlou at thelorehounds.com or head over to our website, uh, thelorehounds.com. And if you go to the contact section and scroll all the way to the bottom, there is a way for you to leave a voicemail and we can take those voicemails and we can incorporate them into our episodes. And then we can add those to our uh, future episodes. So whatever works for you, drop us an email uh, at patrons. You could hit us up on Patreon um, or uh, head over to our website and leave us a voicemail. And given that I'm talking about the uh, Patreon, um, we have one. Um, Head over to patreon.com slash the lorehounds if you're interested in supporting us directly. Uh, For just three bucks a month, you get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. You get early access and there's a lot more and there's more coming. Of course, you can always get our ad-supported podcast on the Lorehounds feed by searching for us on your podcast application of choice or by using the subscription tool at thelorehounds.com. Lastly, we'd just like to ask that if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment and rate us on Apple Podcasts, or even better, leave us a review. That's like one of the best ways to get us up in the rankings, get us seen by more people, and to support us, uh, even separate from the Patreon. Just if you can leave us that review, send us your kind words or your not-so-kind words. That helps us out quite a bit. <laughs> Do you know, actually, John, that you can keep leaving reviews? I noticed I went and looked at it the other day, and it like let me put another review on it. It was another podcast, but it was like, oh, yeah, you can keep doing it. So Interesting. Know. Yeah. You can update your thoughts as you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Lastly, a quick note about this week's programming. We've got a lot of changes happening over here. And we've had to postpone our MC Universe episode, which was scheduled for this Friday, February 10th. We've got more programming notes at the end of the episode, but we just wanted to let folks know up front here that we're going to delay that episode. But Jean and I are excited to talk about Kang and the Quantumverse 
and all things MCU. Uh, we might even throw in some DCU uh, news. Wow. But anyway, yeah, I know. There's big, big changes over there. Uh, but anyway, we'll have some more information about our general programming notes at the end, and we will update everyone as soon as we have a new date for our next MC Universe episode. Hopefully, uh, we'll definitely, well, definitely, hopefully, definitely, hopefully, we're going to have that out before Ant-Man and the Quantumverse comes out, so that you can prep you for what you need to know going into that movie. Very cool. All right, David, so let's get back to The Last of Us. What do you think about this episode? You know, John... Um, Last week's episode was bold, right? Mm, uh, like a good Maxwell House coffee. That's right. Good to the last drop. Uh, this episode, to me, was subtle. Um, there is a lot. Like I was doing my um, out, I was doing the outline today, and so that's my second rewatch. And I'm pausing and listening and looking stuff up and and what have you. So I'm really looking at it through a, a much uh, tighter focus. Mm-hmm. And I really noticed just how well constructed this episode was, but it's in so many little subtle ways. There's also some really great acting choice, like you know, uh, casting choices um, that are also subtle, but very effective. Uh, and we'll talk about those when we get to those scenes. Okay. There's great setup and world building that is also very subtle. Like we learn a whole bunch of stuff, but it's just sort of, in the episode, and you don't feel like it's out front, right? It's just, it's just so well woven in. There's a great interactions between uh, Joel and Ellie, and again, subtle, and they built it subtly over the entire episode, so that by the time, the, at the end, it feels natural and earned and, and is really good. But all of that, that payoff comes because of the subtlety of the preceding scenes uh, throughout the entire episode. Right. So, um, you know, I think this episode is consequential. It doesn't feel as substantial as, say, like, you know, episode three or something like that. But it is as consequential, I think, in the uh, overall storytelling. You know, and it's just, it's just like all these little moments um, throughout this entire episode that really point out to me that uh, Mason and Druckmann and the entire production of this team... Uh, are really paying attention and really crafting, like crafting in the sense that they're really bringing everything that they have and are just really shaping an excellent story. And so that just, again, it just feels really good to be watch, you know, be podcasting about a, a show of this quality. And, and lastly, I can only guess at the number of game Easter eggs that were in here, mm. um, which I'm sure you'll point out a few of those. Anyway, what did you think? Yeah, it was really good and uh, very short. It was like shockingly short <laughs> yes. by the end. A lot of people were caught by that. Yeah, I mean, I thought at the end, like, this could have been easily twice the length than they did the whole plot line. Mm-hmm. But I see why they didn't. You know, it, we're in an interesting point, because I know too much to give you my full thoughts, but sure, my initial thoughts are that if I look at my experience in the game, the plot line we're in now was more emotional for me than the Bill and Frank plotline in the game. And that's partially because that was wow. a very insubstantial plotline in the game. Just like yeah. my thoughts on Bill and Frank in the game was like, wow, Bill seems like an asshole. And uh, that's that's much different from the show where they're actually complex, fully fleshed out characters. But if I'm going to look at the game and like which arcs were most emotionally moving to me, and uh, this is probably top three. Wow. Okay. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask, do you think that this episode did that do you feel served as a, as a game player? I think that I have been set up for a really good 
outcome from this. Nice. I think that the payoff okay. is going to be good. They have combined some arcs from the game. Sure. Which is good. You know, I mean, I think that that's right. Uh, they've fleshed out certain factions like the the bandits they've fleshed out the bandits a lot more than in the game which I, again i think is good i'm really interested in what they're doing with this kathleen character which is a show construction okay and uh um, i thought she yeah. might be a game thing uh, interesting no no she's not in the game at all we, it, wow. in fact, we, we thought she was a different character my wife and i at first and then we said oh no that's not her okay. so yeah no i think it'll be cool i think that this is going to be paid off very well either next episode or the one after Cool. Well, I'm excited to to hear your reactions to when the payoff does uh, deliver. And they they're not they're not being cheap about the payoffs. Like they're paying right. us off as we go, and that feels really good. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that anything. This was the first one where I felt like the arc was not wrapped up with one within one episode. Sure. Yeah. I will say that. Like I I was like, okay, every episode they have me a beginning and a middle and an end, and I felt like we were beginning and middle here. Okay. And next one we're gonna get middle and end, right? Right. This was definitely like bridging us into this new world in Kansas City, right? And the road trip and all of that kind of stuff. And they just got a truck and now they don't. Like, oh my God, come on, guys. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. That's, that happens in the game, too, is like you just lose your truck like right away. Uh, they did, I think, get farther in the game. They changed the city. I don't remember which city, but it was not Kansas City. So right. I don't know why they changed it exactly. I know they mentioned that in the uh, the behind the scenes at the end, like, oh, yeah, we just thought Kansas City would be a better city to do this in, but they didn't really explain why. So, okay, yeah, I mean, it was it was a great setting. I mean, again, the sets are looking amazing. The things that they change from the game make sense and flesh people out more. The things that they keep from the game are charming, except I will point out there is one line in the game that should have been in the show. And I am uh -huh. mad that it's not in there because it was okay. such a, a ma magnificent line All right. from Joel. So we'll get there, but for now, those are my general thoughts. Sounds good. I, I guess maybe Tom Shippey will be happy by the fact that they're making good medium changes for the plot. Right. All right. So normally we do like a, a research topic, or we try to do a, <laughs> a research topic. Um, what I've been finding is I, that as I've been doing the outlines on these, I'm doing a lot more deep diving on individual things in the show. So uh, stuff about the music choices, you know, particular songs or other aspects, props, Easter eggs, little things like that. And that's actually taken up all my time uh, from doing the other research. So um, we're still going deep. We're still doing the Lorehounds thing. It's just getting um, woven into the uh, overall scene by scene rather than a research chunk sort of up front. But I still, we still have some ideas. We still want to talk about Druckmann. We still want to talk about Craig Mazin um, and get into their backgrounds a little bit more in depth. Very cool. Yes, next week, I think we will be doing some showrunner stuff. Let's hope. Let's hope. Fingers crossed. It's all about time. Mm-hmm. All right. So scene by scene. Um, no, as you said, uh, very short episode today. I saw a number somewhere that 45 minutes. Right. Um, that, yeah, no, <laughs> it, was, it was super short. Yeah. Uh, and, and I saw a bunch of people on the Discord were like, ah! <laughs> like, whoa, like what happened here? But I still think it was a, a very effective episode. No cold open. Uh, have you been watching the opening sequence or the the credit sequence? Basically, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, a little bit. And then I, I sometimes I skip it. To be honest, it's uh, is it changing? No, that's what I was going to ask you. I, I don't know that it's changing. I don't think so. Uh, but I, I've been skipping it. So yeah, I mean, the first one didn't seem to like focus on Boston or anything. So I don't, right. I doubt that it's going to change. I feel like it's probably going to be more static. Yeah. Um, especially like Game of Thrones, when that was changing, that was something where 
like who controlled different territories was changing. Yeah. Like a lot of things that were map driven were changing. And that's not the case in this. Like we have two individuals moving across the country. Right, right. So if we do see, if, if anybody does see changes, write in, let us know. Um, For sure. But otherwise, yeah. So uh, at first I wasn't quite sure what the title referred to, but then as I was doing my, my uh, outline, it's uh, a line from the Hank Williams song. And we'll talk mm. a little bit more about that when we, when we get into it. Is that before your time, just like Joel? Uh, it is. It is definitely before my time. But is it a winner? I'm, I'm an old man, but not that old. <laughs> it is a winner. I mean, Hank Williams, man. Can't, can't beat that go. guy. Yeah. All right. So we open on Ellie doing her best impression of Travis Bickle <laughs> with a touch of James Bond, I would think, in the mirror at a gas station bathroom with her new Pew Pew. Um, I thought at first that this was a, a Walther PPK, which is the preferred uh, gun of James Bond. But after seeing uh, later scenes, I'm pretty sure that this is a Beretta Model 70, so or one of the 70 series models. But I, yeah, it, it is very James Bondy. And so when she was doing the whole, um, you know, I was re- ready for her to go, Ellie. I don't know what Ellie's last name is, but you know, like to talk to the the mirror that way. Yeah, no, I mean, I love the scene. This was again. I think that Bella Ramsey is very charming as Ellie. I think that she's captured the character very much, well, putting her own spin on it. Uh, I think that watching her be so into herself was very much in line with character as I've come to know her. Uh, And it's really interesting to watch her sort of circle this portrayal of Ellie that is vulnerable at its core, but outside it uses humor and sass and brattiness to like one push people away but also charm them at the same time it's like ellie is just such a complex character Mm -hmm. so i think that bella ramsey's doing really well with it and we see a lot of complexity later on in this episode that is for sure yeah all right outside joel is siphoning gas and ellie asks why they have to do it every hour joel exposits on the nature of gasoline and then fails to explain physics anyone who has had a lawnmower that is gas and has forgotten to empty it before the winter, (laughs) knows that this is something that is never addressed in apocalyptic shows. Uh But I think about it every single time. And I turned to my wife and I said, they finally did something about this. (laughs) It makes sense. Yeah, really, it it is genuinely something that like bothers me when I'm playing a game or watching a movie or TV show that's in a post-apocalyptic setting. And they're just like, yeah, we got gas for days. It's like, come on, man, gas goes bad. That's interesting. You know, that, that goes along with this whole show's ethos, which is um, a g- very grounded, um, unlike some other zombie shows where everyone can score a perfect headshot, um, you know, under stress, running, shooting at a moving target at like 50 yards away. Um, this one is very real about things. I mean, even Joel even talks about hearing loss due to, you know, firing, you know, so many guns. Uh, so, yeah, that's cool that they actually are keeping that uh, real as well. It's the expanse of zombie shows. (laughs) Oh, nice one. I like that. It's really grounded. You're right. And I think that that's great to see because we are lacking that in the zombie genre. Very much so. So where'd you go? Pretty much nowhere. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That was a great line that there were less overall great lines in this episode as there were last ones, but there's a few good zingers and I I chuckled when uh, when when she asked him about like where could you go with all this gas and Joel's like I don't know we, we didn't go anywhere we didn't do anything we just like ran around like idiots right yeah no I mean I think that that goes along with the 
plane thing from the last episode, yes, right? Like, right. Oh, you were in the sky, and he's like, "Well, it didn't feel like it at the time. You know, it was it, we were just crammed into this can, and we were just stuck, stuck with each other." Very different, very different perspectives when you see somebody who was born before the outbreak and after. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, you could drive around anywhere you want. Yeah, and I was stuck in traffic on the interstate for you know, <laughs> you right. know how many hours of my life were spent in traffic jams. There's a lot of open road in the U.S., especially. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've driven quite a bit of it because I used to travel for work sometimes and oh, really? have to okay. drive it uh, when I was doing some audio stuff. And uh, it's beautiful to drive it, but in the moment you're like, man, I'm tired and I want to get off the road. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, about siphoning, I checked, a, you know, I did a little internet reading. I don't call it internet research because it's not research, it's just internet reading. Um, Apparently, the word siphon is uh, Greek for pipe tube, um, and we have evidence going back to use by the Egyptians, so uh, that's pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. It's, uh, um, it's an interesting thing, right? And uh, I don't know how it works, and neither does Joel. No, he doesn't. He's like, uh, you know, I, as a parent, I'm, you know, both being parents, um, sometimes you get confronted by questions that your kids ask you. I mean, one of them. I don't think both kids are asking you a lot of questions just yet. Uh, but you recognize <laughs> how much you don't actually know about the world and how much you just take on face value that, you know, I don't know how this works. I just know it does. Right. Right. And thank God some people remember how it works in this world because otherwise nobody would be doing anything. It's true. It's true. At least um, Frank, no, no, uh, Bill was able to know about how to use natural gas, you know, storage facilities and turn things on. Yeah, definitely. That was hilarious. Um, Apparently, there are a couple of different theories about how siphoning actually works. For the longest time, I mean, people understood that gravity was involved because, you know, you've got to get the liquid up and over the hump. And then once it comes down, right, then gravity is doing something. And for the longest time, people thought it was atmospheric pressure, that the pressure of, um, it was a pressure differential, kind of like a wing effect, right? So it was, that's what was causing the, the, you know, the vacuum sort of suction action. Right. But then they've done it in zero, in a vacuum, where there is no air, where there is no atmospheric pressure, and it still works. Mm. And apparently they've done it with gas bubbles and a bunch of other things, like trying out different things. And so there's something uh, called chain theory that it has to do with how the liquid is connected sort of to itself and it can sort of form this continuous surface tension thing or something. I didn't get too that deep into it. Um, and so the, it's one of those things where it could be uh, some or all or, um, you know, of these things. So maybe in a vacuum, it's chain theory and gravity, or maybe it's, you know, uh, pressure and gravity. Like, they, they're not quite sure, actually. So hmm. I give Joel a point, you know, a, a few, you know, I, I don't give him too much of a hard time because even the scientists don't really know. Joel's chain theory is based on Fleetwood, Fleetwood Mac's rumors. <laughs> I, say more? I'm not sure I get you don't know the song, The Chain, on yes. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors? Yeah, but yeah, if yeah. you don't love me now... That's what I'm saying. That's Joel's chain theory. He doesn't, okay. have, a, he doesn't have a scientific chain theory. I got it. Okay. You're a little on the outside on that one for me. Uh, and I'm the old man, so I should totally know that song. It's true. <laughs> but you're a musician, so hey. All right, Joel tells Ellie to stay close. 
So she breaks out a book of puns and subjects Joel to some real zingers. <laughs> the pun book is a lift from the game, but it is not used in the same way. It is not used in the same setting. And I think we will get to that setting, so I'm not going to talk about it right now. But it's, right. I love that they took the pun book in because I think it's such a quirky part of Ellie's personality is that she just loves these cheesy puns. Yeah, yeah. Volume two, get it? T-O-O? yeah this was uh it was cringe but it was fun and and then he's like he's like no he's like he's in pain like he's like stop the torture (laughs) feel free to wait in the truck Uh, he was i I loved how he was trying to play it off i know yeah he's doing everything he can to not bond with this girl yes i mean even the way he speaks to her in the car which we'll get Mm -hmm. to it's just it's very dismissive it's very like trying to turn her into an object Right. Cargo. Right. Yeah. Um, I tried to find the book. Uh, I couldn't find it online. Um, so if anybody's got a line on it, uh, let us know. But I looked on eBay and thrift books and, and a couple other places and no luck. They probably couldn't get the rights to a pun book and they made one up. That's a good idea. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I wonder if there's an Easter egg in the author's name because she does say the author's name a couple of times. So Right. Yeah. Write in if, you, if you've got intel on that. One thing I did love, I, I, I will say that uh, now that they're out of the uh, Boston QZ, I'm liking the sets a little bit more. It felt very um, artificial in Boston, but now it feels uh, much better. I, I like the visual looks that we're getting here. And I love as the blue Chevy is driving away from that gas station, that that baby blue, that robin's egg blue contrasted against the green of the sort of the decay and of the moss that's growing on everything around them. It was a really beautiful shot. And another beautiful shot when Ellie comes out of the gas station. Uh, just a gorgeous sky and, uh, yeah, re- really really looking good. I'm, I'm liking what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the themes that the game makers were trying to put in here was, was uh, life finds a way, right? Like, nature is mm. going to reassert itself right. without so many humans. And it is beautiful at times. Like, you can, you can get beauty out of this post-apocalyptic world. And this show is doing a great job of highlighting that, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And the visuals are, are looking great. The CGI compositing against the real backdrops. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So they continue on their road trip and Ellie finds a cassette tape of Hank Williams and we hear the song Alone and Forsaken. Um, this song was released in 1955. He had recorded it originally a few years prior on the radio. Well, not recorded it, but it was recorded when he did a live sort of radio thing. And it took him a few years, and then they released it. But it was actually released two years after his death, um, hmm. interestingly enough. And this is where we get the title for the episode. And just the relevant um, stanza here is, Alone and Forsaken, by fate and by man. O Lord, if you hear me, please hold to my hand. O please understand. I think this was a good way to use the song in the title without being so on the nose with Alone and Forsaken. Yeah. The, the atmospherics that the music are doing to this, tonally, sort of uh, the cool sort of additive nature of not only the titles and the, and the song material, um, but then, yeah, just the, the songs themselves. Their, their music choices are, are, have been stellar so far. Yeah. Great soundtrack. I wonder if they'll release a soundtrack in the end. I wonder if there's a Spotify list. Out. Yeah, that would be good to know. Um, yeah, because sometimes they do rolling. Like, I think the Andor 
Um, yeah. Spotify was kind of rolling, rolled out uh, over the course of the season. So yeah, yeah they did it by like a bunch of episodes with Andor. Right, right. All right, Ellie finds some light reading material and fucks with Joel a little bit. Then she tosses, blimey, the magazine out of the window eventually. <laughs> this is direct from the game. Yes, okay. When they put this in, my wife and I turned to each other and were like, they're doing it. Because it's, <laughs> it's just so funny to me. The, the, why are all the pages sticking together? Yeah, so good. So good. And Joel, you just see Joel's face and he's just cringing. He turned white, basically. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, just just that. See, that would have been gross if it were true. But the fact that she's just messing with him makes it way better. It's so much yeah. funnier. And this is what I was talking about, the subtlety of this episode. So all episode long, they're building up this humorous rapport between them. Uh, and at first, it's painful and awkward and cringy. And you're like, ooh, you know, well, Joel's like, ooh. But in the end, it ultimately works. And I think that's an interesting aspect of um ellie's character is that for as annoying as she can be there's also something else there that's vital and alive and uh worth saving i guess i think she's kind of charming right like it, it, yeah. when she wants to be she's charming mm-hmm. she's just has wanted to be a brat to joel this whole time because joel was kind of being a dick to her sure and i think she thought she was going to have tests for a long time and now she's going well this is what i've got maybe i'll just try to work my way into this guy. Right. She can't not be that way, right? That, like, that's just her fundamental nature is to be this irreverent, uh, fun person. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think that Joel is also somebody who's like, he has that kind of sense of humor, like, yes. you know, in the first one with the, the watch, right? When he was yep. joking with Sarah. It's just that he's closed off so much that he hasn't joked in, tw- uh, what, 20 years? That's absolutely a great call. You're absolutely right. He's been so shut down trying to survive, take care of Tommy, and then, yeah, uh, take care of Tess and, and all their sort of stuff, just surviving on a day to daily basis, that he hasn't had time or the spirit to joke, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No mental energy to do that, right? I yeah. mean, he's, he's taking handfuls of pills, literally, <laughs> literally. and uh, drinking to get to sleep. I don't know if I'd be able to joke in the morning after that. And and this is where uh, and and we've you've, you've talked about this a bunch and and as we've seen in the show that their characters have a, a very strong overlap that they are they are both the same in this sort of irreverent fun sort of pranky kind of way. Yeah, they're both broken people who have trouble trusting people and who have been largely abandoned in life, who are sort of feeling each other out. I think like every mm-hmm. joke is another chip away at the walls between them. Right. And it's at really at her, um, I don't want to say insistence, but at her, she's the one who's driving that. Yeah, I mean, it might just be that she's 15 and she's just like, well, I'm bored. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's exactly what's going on. <laughs> and I think she had a right at first to be uh, defensive and angry and suspect because she had been chained up by the fireflies. She bit. Right. She was, well, you know, even before then, she was in Fedra school. I mean, God knows what that's like. Right. Um, and she got bit and thought she was probably going to die. And that was probably a pretty, you know, scary experience. And then she gets chained up by the fireflies. She has no agency in her life. And now she's being passed around like cargo. She was being subjected to, to being studied. And then now she's cargo and all the while trying to make the best of it. So I kind of, in some ways, can't fault her for being a brat. Because, like, how else are you supposed to 
cope with all of that <laughs> bullshit that you're, you know, being subjected to. Right. And we still don't even know the story of her getting bit, right? Like, who knows Not, what yeah. that was like? Right. I mean, I do, but you don't. <laughs> all right. We see scenes of the countryside as they drive across the wastelands of Canada? <laughs> um, yeah, been a lot I think so. <laughs> so did you see Pedro Pascal's SNL monologue? No, but I heard uh, that he's got he had a few funny skits on uh, on the show the other night. So I, I think I have to go check it out. He did, and in his monologue, he said, "Some people who work at HBO get to shoot at a five star resort in Italy, surrounded by beautiful people, <laughs> and others like me think that's too easy and go to shoot in the cold winter of Canada, being chased by a man in a suit that makes him look like a genital wart." <laughs> I, I, oh God, okay, I'm going to definitely have to check this out. That sounds hilarious. He did really well on SNL. It was really nice. That's great. Good. Well, my spouse is very much into SNL, and uh, she was telling me a couple of things, so I look forward to, maybe we'll have to watch it together. Um, We see some bison. We see a roller coaster. Maybe the Mississippi River they're crossing. I don't know, uh, maybe another river. Um, we see some big logistics centers, burned out military equipment, a train bridge. That was really cool. And I think that they're playing a little bit, they're doing a little bit of hand wavy, a little jazz hands here with the geography, but I'm kind of fine with it. And I don't really care that 10 miles outside of Boston looks like, you know, the middle of Vancouver Island or something. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you got to do what you got to do for the production, right? I'm fine with it. I, I can totally live with it. Yeah. Didn't break my immersion. No, that's good. Joel calls a break, and they drive off-road to camp overnight in the woods. Ellie wolfs down some 20-year-old Chef Boyardee ravioli. (laughs) That guy was good. I actually agree. (laughs) I mean, look, if you're Ellie and you've never had, like, flavorful food, well, let's assume, okay, maybe, but Joel saying that he loved Chef Boyardee? Oh, man. That's strange. It was a good stuff. Good stuff. You know, what's really good is to mix your Kraft macaroni and cheese and your Chef Boyardee ravioli together. How dare mm, you? That was, that's, that's the bomb, man. That's the bomb. I'm leaving. The podcast <laughs> is over. <laughs> it's it. We're done. But my big question is, who the, who the, who, who eats Chef Boyardee ravioli with a fork and a knife? <laughs> Joel's over there like, <laughs> and Ellie's like wolfing it down. I'm like, that's how you eat ravioli. Ellie was doing it right. You just like, ar, ar, ar. yeah, it's, it's super weird. I mean, I guess it's a step up from the eggshell eggs that he's getting at the beginning of the series. But yeah, yeah, I mean, he's he's certainly favoring it like a five star meal. Yeah, it was so bizarre. <laughs> anyway, Ellie asks about their route and Joel estimates their travel time. Uh, Joel then schools Ellie on why they're not lighting a fire. And that sets up the threat from people not infected. This is something that I love in this universe is that, and I think that I I guess The Walking Dead was kind of like this too, right? Which is that like, okay, the zombies are a big problem, but the bigger problem is that people are assholes. Right. But I think that, I mean, I haven't watched The Walking Dead a lot, but I, from my understanding, The Last of Us does this a lot better is just the cruelty of man, right? Mm. The cruelty of your fellow human being who just right. wants power, who just wants to control things, who just wants to live in comfort at the expense of others. That is the big threat. This sort of scarcity mindset, tribalism, gone full tilt. Right, because this is not even an artificial scarcity like we have today. This is real, like, 
we can't we don't have supply lines right we don't have open fields to farm in it's it's an issue so yeah i mean you get why this becomes a tribal mentality and that really comes into play this episode and i think you were saying even in the gameplay in terms of resource scarcity um that that's a real functional aspect of how you play the game yeah i mean there's no like food mechanic there's no there's no like starvation mechanic. Some games have that, and Ooh, I, I hate find those. that annoying. I know. <laughs> yeah, if, I find tough. it super annoying. So I'm glad that they don't have that in the game. But they do have like it's hard to find bullets. It's hard to find stuff to make a med kit with things like that. So right. yeah, they're doing a good job of portraying it in the show. Cool. So I spent some time on Google Maps today, um, trying to figure out their routing, and uh, it's a bit of a head scratcher. <laughs> so if you put in Cody, Wyoming, from Boston. It gives you a straight-ish northern route that sort of hugs the Great Lakes, the bottom of the Great Lakes. And uh, they say that it's 34 hours long and around 2,500 miles, which is around 4,000 kilometers. But then Ellie says that they're on Route 76 and then on to Route 70. And then that's also where Kansas City is along that route. So if you then bring that down there, you get up to like 37 hours. And I'm sorry, that's more 2,500 miles or 4,000 kilometers. I think the 34-hour route is more like 2,100, 2,200, something like that. So not a huge difference. but And, and of course, that's not factoring stopping every hour to siphon watery gas. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just they probably just wanted to use Kansas City for some reason. But maybe part of it is you can explain it away with the north is harder to traverse because it can be colder and snowier and things like that. Like they wanted mm. to be in the south. I don't know. But that's a that's me explaining it. The show didn't explain that. But again, I didn't think about any of this. And uh, I might accuse you of <laughs> thinking a little bit too hard of the, about this. Jacuse. Jacuse. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think that this is something that you might just have to look the other way on. Well, you know, I get into my recap. So in Andor, I was doing my recaps as we were watching because the the thoughts were just coming so um, fast. I mean, like almost every scene in Andor was exciting me and I had to like write it down and I had questions and thoughts. And in this one, I'm watching the Sunday night view and just letting the episode, because I don't know anything about the property. I mean, I didn't, I know a little right. bit about Star Wars, not as much, but this one, so I'm watching it on Sundays. And then when I'm doing my outlining, I'm like, oh, when was that Hank Williams song released? And oh, how would they end up, you know, in in Kansas City if they were coming from Boston? Like I have these like natural questions and then I end up in these like re- quote unquote research holes and uh, digging around too much. So yeah, I don't know. That's all right. Well, let's get to Kansas City because we can't keep you on the road any longer. So they bed down for the night and we see Joel chambering around into his bolt action rifle. Which again, subtlety in filmmaking here, right? They're giving us, um, they're prepping us, they're priming us for him using his rifle later in the episode. And then Ellie tortures Joel with more puns and Joel dunks on her a little bit because uh, he knows the answer to one. And then Ellie looks up at the stars and asks Joel for reassurance, which he does give her. And then later we see Joel standing watch. Um, and I just want quickly to point out that the, this whole thing of her waking him up and asking him questions pays off in the last scene of the episode. So, Yeah, uh, it does. It also calls back, this whole thing calls back to the first episode where uh, Ellie says, 
but you've done this before, so we're going to be okay. Right? Yeah. She does have these moments of vulnerability where she's still a kid and yeah. where she needs a grown up to say, You are going to be safe with me. Yeah. And it was interesting to see Pedro Pascal, when he's doing that line delivery, check his emotion there. Like, can I actually. Because, like, you know, he, lo- like, you know, he was telling Sarah, at, you know, in episode one, like, hold on to me, everything's going to be okay. And everything wasn't. So, can he honestly tell another kid that, like, it's going to be okay? I'm, you know, and it's going to be okay because I'm here and we're together. That's tough. And I think he delivered that line really nicely, sort of hitching for a second before saying it and then sort of saying it with meaning, but also a little bit of questioning as he's saying. Yeah, I mean, I think that Joel, Joel knows that Ellie just needs to hear it, right? And then he hedges his bet and he <laughs> stays up all night. I don't think he slept that night at all, mm. which is scary that he's driving all day and not sleeping at night. Yeah, I've, I've done some of those long drives where like, you're kind of nodding at the wheel. It's scary. I, I do not like it. Yeah, I don't know what was going through his head. I mean, I guess, I guess he was just like, well, if we die, we don't drive anyway. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so for the, the whole front side of this episode, right? Like we had such a heartwarming episode last episode with Frank and Bill. And in this one, it's like, okay, I was kind of bracing to you know, feel some terror or something horrible to happen. And this whole time that they're in the woods, um, even on the drive, I, I'm just like, sl- my, my anxiety is slowly, slowly cranking up. And when they went to sleep, I was just like ready to light my hair on fire and go screaming from the room that something bad was going to happen. And then it didn't. I was like, ah. But they did a really good job of amping up my anxiety. I, I don't know about you. Um, I was more excited for the line that I didn't get oh, okay. than I was anxious at this point. I mean, last episode, I had so much anxiety that I couldn't even concentrate. This episode, okay. I, was, I was pretty calm most of the time. I was like, they're going to get out. They're, they're, right. they're going to they're get out of the initial situation, at least. All right. So we had a little anxiety transference here between you and me in the, on it's these true. episodes. All right, John, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll get Ellie's opinions on Starbucks coffee. we're back. So in the morning, Joel makes coffee and Ellie reacts violently. They head off and we learn that the QZ had a Starbucks. Yeah. Uh, I loved the crapping on coffee. I think that that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> coffee is disgusting. It I love like it. burnt shit. I absolutely love coffee. And uh, if you just look at it in its pure form, it's like, why did we ever start drinking this? But I mean, I like it now. If you did not grow up with coffee, it would probably be very weird to you, and Ellie yeah. has not. Uh, Joel loving coffee is a thing from the game. I think that he does not get coffee for a long time, though, in the game. But I, right. I, I don't think that's just something he had. But maybe, maybe it's more explained in this because he got to raid Bill's pantry. Yeah. Whereas in the game, he was just like given the truck and he said, now fuck off. Yeah, I, I went off coffee for a number of years, uh, a, a long while back. Oh, you're one of those. It was interesting. Um, I was doing some, I, was, I actually did a meditation course where um, it was a 10-day silent thing. 
And I was like, you know, I'm going to go off coffee uh, because I, I don't want to deal with that while I'm trying to do this thing. I, I was really you know, interested at that time. So I did. And then I, I went off coffee and then I just never went back. And then we had a kid. And I was like, give me my damn coffee. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Now I'm a, a, a definitely, but I do, a, you know, I do a blend uh, myself where I get ch- uh, the same beans right from the same company, the same roast, a French roast, and I get one decaf and one caffeinated, and then I mix them 50 50. So that way I can uh. have the nice long morning ritual of drinking multiple cups, but then I'm not like bouncing off the walls after, you know, after a, a little while. David, do me a favor. Don't take any vows of silence during this podcast production. <laughs> it was not compatible. That is not compatible. Yeah, I just will go through with bouncing off the walls with coffee if I drink too much. So you're a better man than me for <laughs> doing the half decaf. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I loved seeing this interaction. I think that every time that they reemphasize the difference between somebody born before and after yeah, the outbreak, yeah, yeah, totally. it is another good way to subtly world build. And so uh, back to Joel and Ellie's interactions, you know, when she tells him that it smells, smells like burnt shit and then he looks at her and he's got the thermos and he just goes slurp. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, that was good. It was like, he was giving it back to her. Right. Yeah. And, and it was a really great little, little moment. I think that they did a great job of him not changing too quickly either. Right. Like it was very subtle. Him slurping mm-hmm. is a very subtle evolution of answering yeah. her pun. Like exactly. that, that was his first step. And then, then he does the, the slurping and then later he does other stuff. So I think that it's, it's a really good way to show how he's slowly breaking down. It's not like night and day where suddenly he's like, well, she told me a pun. So we're best friends now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's earned. It's, it's, it's earned every step of the way. Um, something that really bugged the crap out of me and, and, and just again, from one of those like um, propriety things. And certainly Elliot is no way can know this. But close the damn lid on the percolator. Like, you can't make coffee when the percolator lid is open, right? Like, that's the whole functionality of that thing. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of percolator coffee. I much prefer doing a Chemex or a French press. Mm-hmm. But yes, you're right. You got you to gotta close the percolator. I used to be a barista for a little while. Oh, nice. Uh, Good, yeah. So I used, to, I used to make quite a bit of coffee in different methods. Got it. And now I'm too snobby about my coffee. But every now and then I'll still do, like, Mr. Coffee anyway, because... People are busy. I am not a big French press fan. I am if I then refilter it with a paper filter to kind of take out the oils and the, mm-hmm. and the grit a little bit. Um, I just have a drip uh, machine that I, I do mine in now. And I set it for about half an hour or so before I get up. And so I get up and I got my coffee. Nice. Yeah. 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 You can't beat that auto brew. Yeah, it is awesome. Um, the weird thing about the percolator too, it, like it really weirdly cross connected with the scene with Ellie in the magazine. <laughs> like it was kind of you know that action <laughs> of of liquid moving vertically. Uh, oh boy! Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry everybody. Anyway, moving on. Um, last other production note on this scene: um, Joel looks great. Like he, the makeup in this show has been great because he really looks like he just woke up. His face is kind of puffy and a little bit pale, and his eyes are a little bit blurry. And I was like, it just kind of struck me that like, oh, yeah, that's that's how I, I think I look when I wake up <laughs> after <laughs> being up all night uh, standing guard. Yeah, yeah. He, he is in rough shape here. And what a day to be in rough shape. Yeah, right. It's, it's going to get momentous. Um, back on the routing thing, I, I've got my notes here for, for I-76 and I-70. 
I don't know, this is just kind of this is me being weird and, and nerdy about this stuff again. I-76 runs from Philly to Cleveland, and it passes along Pittsburgh. And so if they're coming from Boston, probably somewhere around Cleveland or Pittsburgh is where, I think in, in Pittsburgh, actually, is where they would pick up I-70 westbound, which would take them to Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, St. Louis, and then Kansas City. And they make like some crazy time. They do some real jetpacking here and passing through some major uh, civilian population centers. Um, so it's very hand wavy. Uh, but, you know, like we said, we'll allow it. I will allow it. Let's move on. John has uh, given it its blessing. Um, Ellie asks about Joel's brother, Tommy. Joel explains that Tommy was a joiner and uh, talks about he, how he ended up in Boston and meeting Tess. He describes the fireflies as delusional and that they need to get out to Wyoming to find Tommy. Ellie asks him why Joel keeps going and he calls her cargo. So first of all, on Tommy, this is more background than we ever get on Tommy in the game, but it mm -hmm. is 100% in line with his character in the game. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I just finished the second game. So I know even more things than I did on the last podcast. Uh huh. And uh, I was like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> I think um, based on what Joel was saying, I, I had theorized, I think, in after episode one that both um, Joel and Tommy had both served. And now I think it's only Tommy. I don't think Joel was in the military. So I'm not sure why he has that watch, which is yeah. a military-inspired style watch. Um, and maybe we'll find out the uh, the meaning behind the watch later on. I mean, it's certainly a device to connect him and, and Sarah, obviously. But yeah, I don't think uh, Joel did any any time in the military. Now, based on how he was talking about Tommy. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I know we had that debate on the first episode of whose truck yeah. is it where yeah. with the uh, military sticker. I think the answer was Tommy in the end. But how, how would we have known that at the time? Exactly. Um, Ellie asks, what if you don't find him? And Joel replies, I will. How do you know? I'm persistent. <laughs> yeah, that's Joel. He is, yeah. if nothing else, he's persistent. And again, just in this little subtle conversation, we get so much world building and we get so much uh, backstory, even mm -hmm. though, and it doesn't ever feel forced. It doesn't ever feel like, feel like they're talking to us, the audience. Like these are things that these characters would say to each other naturally in that situation. So it just feels, everything just feels right about how the dialogue is running in this in this season. Yeah. Also, calling her cargo. Eey. Not great. Not Ooh. great. Gut punch. Joel, have you heard of human trafficking? Duh, 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 <laughs> duh. Because that's literally what you're doing here. Right. Literally, literally. You're going across state lines, sir. To uh, He's going across state lines to give one, you know, one uh, to give a human being to another human being and then be paid for it. To do medical experiments on. <laughs> no less. <laughs> when, you took, when you take the plot like that, it's not great, folks. No, it's not. It's great. not. Very cringe. All right. Joel lets her know that she should grab some more sleep. She replies that she's not tired. Smash cut to her being passed out. <laughs> <laughs> that was just funny. That was a good laugh. Yeah, it was right. And so here's another little subtlety. They're injecting little moments of humor like that throughout the... Uh, season and throughout the episodes. And when you're dealing with a, a heavy, dark subject like that, I find that those little moments of levity 
um, they're like little palate cleansers, right? They're, they're just little pick-me-ups. Um, things are getting heavy and dark, and then boom, you have a little levity, a little humor, and uh, you move on. I think with House of the Dragon, which was, you know, season one was excellent, but we never had those moments. And so it felt by the end of the season, uh, it was a slog. It was, it was really heavy lifting. Right, right. Yeah. Now, when you compare it to Andor, which had like, you know, cereal, cereal eating cereal. Yes. Now, I mean, I, I think that that's what elevated Andor above House of the Dragon for me. So I'm glad to see that The Last of Us is retaining a lot of the humor and adding a lot of humor from the game uh, because it's just working for me. Like, this is the best show I've seen all year, and it's the second month, so that's not saying a lot. But it will be the best show I watch all year, maybe. Right. It's definitely S tier. Uh, it, it is it's going, in the up, it's going in the top 10, no question. Um, and then we just got to see what else comes out this year. Um, that is going to challenge it. But yeah, so far, it's trending uh, at the top of the list. That is no, no doubt. All right, coming into now what the show is calling Kansas City, they face a blockage in front of a tunnel that runs under town. Joel scopes it out. They look at the map. And then Joel makes a fateful decision to try and drive through town. This scene where he's driving through town was very reminiscent of the first episode when he decides to go through town to get to the highway with Tommy and Sarah. Oh, good callback. I hadn't thought about that. And I'm looking at this with he's driving past the storefronts and I'm like, oh, this is going to go badly. Even though Mm -hmm. I know that it's going to go badly anyway, like just that added, like if I was just watching this the first time, I think that that kind of telegraphs to me who's seen this go wrong before that something is about to go terribly wrong. And I was on on the edge of my seat while he's like scoping out the semi that's blocking the tunnel. And I was just waiting for an ambush to happen. You know, this is, you know, like a kill zone, you know, ambush spot here, this perfect dead end. And so, yeah, just kept ramping up my anxiety. And then, yeah, when they decide to go through town, I was just like, oh, no. Oh, no. So predictably, they get lost. They pass the QZ and then are flagged down by what we know is a well-worn slippin' Jimmy ruse. Um, Ellie, <laughs> Ellie cries, this is my second day in a fucking car, man, when Joel gives her a hard time about reading the map. Yeah, yeah. The, the slippin' Jimmy ruse. Yes. That is something that happened in the game, but Joel had a great line in the game that should have been here, uh-huh. which is that when the guy is like, oh, I'm injured, help me. Ellie goes, are you going to help him? And he goes, he's not even hurt. And then he (laughs) speeds up and drives right into him. Uh Uh-huh. And I was like, that would have been so good on screen. Right. Why are you not doing this? That line is so good. He's not even hurt. Because it tells Mm -hmm. you, I think that without even Joel's explanation later, it tells you that Joel has been part of this kind of thing, right? Like, it tells you that he knows the intention of the other guy. He's wise in these ways. And perhaps for nefarious reasons, right? Mm, yeah, which a uh, great conversation point later on when they're talking about it. Right. Joel and I are not good people. Yeah, exactly. Um, something interesting to pick up, the, um, as they drive by a movie theater, the two movies on the marquee, and I don't know why they picked these. Um, it'd be interesting to hear from the showrunners on this, are Underworld, which is that you know classic uh, vampire versus werewolves um, a thing, and that was released on September nineteenth, two thousand and three. And the other film that we see on the marquee is Matchstick Men, which was released September twelfth, two thousand three, and that stars Nicolas Cage and Sam Rockwell. So why those two were? I mean, they don't pick 
most ship productions don't pick these kinds of little details without some kind of hidden meaning. So I don't know if they just sort of picked these out of a hat, uh, you know, looked at the, the of what films were released when, or if there was some sort of inside joke that the showrunners have. But uh, if, if you have a theory, or if you know, um, drop us a note, TLOU at thelorehounds.com, or leave us a voicemail. So um, as they uh, see the uh, fake wounded man, they're ambushed, and then they crash their car into a laundromat. A gun battle ensues, and the gunmen tell them to turn over the supplies and that they can live through it if they do. I don't know if that would have happened in the game. I think that they just wanted to kill everybody and take their stuff in the game. So it was interesting to change it that way. I think that they've, they've made the Fedra agents more humanized in the show, and they've also done that with the bandits here. I, um, when the, when the brick thing smashed into the window, I was like, okay, okay, fine. They can, they can still make it out of here. But then they hit that improvised spike strip and I was like, oh no, that, that's it. Yeah. This is over. Yep. Yeah. And then now we're in a stealth mission. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, as they take fire, Joel gets Ellie to safety and then he's able to kill one of the gunmen. He exercises some good tactical thinking and does a shoot and scoot and then is able to kill the second Joel is then surprised by the third man, who's really a kid, and Ellie shoots him with her gun to save Joel. The kid is paralyzed and begs for his life. Joel tells Ellie to get clear, and then he knifes the kid, who screams for his mother. Ugh. That was hard to watch. Mm. And, like, in a way, you don't feel badly for him, because he was perfectly fine with killing somebody just to take their stuff. Right. But in another way, you're like, wow, this is a human being and he's not a threat anymore and you're going to kill him anyway. Right. What does he say? He says, we're, we're done fighting now. <laughs> like, we can be yeah. friends. We'll trade with you. My yeah, mom's nearby. You get very much partial credit for doing that when you're already paralyzed and can't fight back. But yeah, I mean, it was, Joel didn't need to kill him, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he would obviously, Joel would know that there are others nearby. And that um, this guy could then provide information on Joel and Ellie, right? Mm, that's true, too. Like, I guess descriptions and maybe say, like, they went through that wall. Right, exactly. And they, yeah, they came in in that truck and, you know, and it's a man and a little girl. Okay, we know what we're looking for. We know how to hunt them because they don't have their supplies. They don't have a lot of their stuff. Because I don't even think Joel takes his rifle or grabs any of the other firearms from the other guys that he, he put down. No, I think they have their pistols and Ellie brought some food. Yeah, right. Which I loved the, um, th this is going, this goes into the next scene where they do a quick inventory, which I thought was great because Ellie's learning, right? That's, she's, she's applying some tactical sense. What do we yeah. have? What do we need to do? And then they make a plan to head up so that they can plan a route out of the city to um, avoid more people who start showing up to investigate. If not that she wants to be like Joel as a moral person, mm -hmm. maybe instead she wants to be like him in his self-sufficiency and independence, right? right? I think that she would like to have the skills that Joel has. Right. She right. should probably learn how to swim. Survival, the, the ability yeah, to have a good head on your shoulders, make good tactical and survival decisions under, under pressure, um, and then just to have all your, you know, have yourself together, right? Have your equipment and your tools and that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she asks smart questions, right? Like, she doesn't right. just observe. She's like, why are you doing this so I know when to do it? That's really good. That's a good point, because when they're in the forest and he says, 
to her, he's teaching her, right? He says, what, what reasons am I going to give you to, for, as for why we're not lighting a fire? And even though she doesn't give the quote unquote correct answer, that's fine because she's now in, her brain is now engaged in learning mode. And so whatever right. Joel says now is going to take in a different way. And as opposed to just tossing an answer out. So he engages her thinking faculties and learning faculties, and she's receptive to it and wants that. And, and um, uh, I think probably as a kid, as most kids do, you know, craves that kind of um, attention and ability to learn and improve. Yeah, no, I mean, I love watching them sort of become this father-daughter relationship, right? Like this uh, at least yeah. elder and, and younger mm-hmm. kind of right. thing. Um, I loved the perspective of Ellie hiding on the other side of the wall, and when Joel takes down the second gunman, I thought that that was really smart filmmaking. There was no need. We were getting the action we wanted from the episode. At least I felt like I was getting the action I wanted from the episode, and there was no need for me to see Joel take down the second guy, and I felt it was way more dramatic to watch Ellie as she's panicking, not panicking, but she's on the edge of panic, and she's working through her options, knife, gun, right, you know, where am I hiding, all of that kind of stuff. And she's sort of hiding behind the wall, and we see the other gunman go by, and then we hear the report, and then the the guy falls. I felt that that was just so much more potent as a scene than if they cut to Joel, you know, shooting that guy in some sort of wide shot. Yeah. It was, I think, I think perspective matters a lot, right? I mean, we've talked about, you know, how much it matters who you're following, especially mm. in a game, in a show that comes from a video game yeah. where you're following Joel the whole time, as far as we know right now. Right. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've watched Joel kill a lot of people because I mm-hmm. pulled the trigger. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, it's really interesting to see it more from Ellie's perspective. I think that the show is being very additive in that way. We got to talk about Ellie's reaction here um, when she shoots uh, the kid in the back uh, and what happens there. Um, yeah, she panics, you... I think. Uh-huh. She's like, oh, what did I do? Right. I mean, that's the first time she's shot somebody. Yeah. And she does seek validation later. Well, mm-hmm. actually, is it the first time she shot somebody? That's the question, we don't know. right? Because he, she said that she's at least hurt somebody before. Right. And we know that she's hurt and infected, whatever that means in for her. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that in this world, at least, let's not defend it or or oppose it. But I think that in this world, it clearly people delineate killing infected from killing humans as well. They're not themselves anymore, right? Like they're right. controlled by the fungus. We're just killing right. fungus at that point. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Bipedal fungus. Yeah. If anything, it's a mer- mercy kill in their right. view. If there's anything left of that person in that body, any, any mindfulness, any personality or spirit left there. Right. Um, I like that Ellie went through the thoughts, right? She's got, she pulls out her knife, which is her go-to. Then she's like, wait a minute, I've got a gun. So she pulls out her <laughs> gun. And then she approaches, if you notice, she approaches walking over broken glass, which is funny yeah. relative to the last scene. Um, and then she comes up on him and, and then I was worried too, that like, you know, if he's in, in that position, she could have easily just as, you know, just as easily shot Joel as, as shooting the guy. I know it was kind of a dumb shot to make, to be honest, because it could have just gone through him. Right. Exactly. I mean, fortunately that particular pistol is a, a low, you know, that, that round doesn't have a lot of velocity to it. Seems like, uh, she hit his spine too, which probably exactly. was a little bit harder of a target to hit. 
Well, if you think of the the guys over Joel trying to choke him with uh, his gun uh, against his neck, so his back is arched and curved, and so the natural spot would be right there in the small of the back. That would pose the biggest, simplest target to hit, where the most, you know, that, that that's the big target right there. I think that's where she... And for her to be able to control her nerves, pull the trigger, and hit reasonably what she's aiming for, that's pretty good cool under fire. Yeah. I think that Ellie is very smart, and she has the potential to be a very good survivalist and mm -hmm. a very good, I guess, not soldier, but, you know, No, a survivalist fighter. is the right... Fighter. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And then I think there's some really good stuff later on in terms of the emotional reaction um, uh, to this uh, scene later. Right. She seeks validation, which I don't mm. think Joel effectively gives. Not in the moment. Right. But later he does. Yeah. Right. All right, we cut to a group of armed people guarding a building and then to an interior scene of a Fedra detention cell where Kathleen, played by Melanie Linsky, is interrogating her pediatrician, who seems to have been a Fedra informant. She asks questions about various people and then asks about Henry. She puts a gun to the head of her pediatrician and then is alerted by the sound of a truck horn. I'm your doctor. <laughs> who cares you man it's it's uh this again this is a new character for the show i'm liking okay. her so far uh-huh uh, i've seen this actor in yellow jackets a little bit and yep. uh she's also in i think it's i don't want to live in this world anymore uh, -huh. uh really fun little movie with elijah wood and uh she's always very fun she always plays somebody a little bit unhinged i think mm-hmm and she certainly is unhinged in this show. So I, I think this choice for the actor is kind of brilliant. Because when I saw her pop up on screen, I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's from Yellow Jackets. It's the actor who's from Yellow Jackets. I'm like, wait, she's a suburban mom type, right? Like that's, you know, to play to type, that's what I would, that's what I've got baked into my brain for her. And no, she's the leader of this insurgent movement or something, and she's cold, straight up interrogating this mofo, and she is on a mission. And I love that inversion or that twist or however you want to describe it, because I was not expecting it, and I'm fully sold on Kathleen's character now. Um, that, that initial scene, like, I I'm bought in, hook, line, and sinker. I want to know who she is, what's going on what's going on with the storyline because of the fact that she's not playing to her stereotype. Yeah. And also I'm not sure what this group is actually doing. And that's not me being cute about game knowledge. Like they uh -huh. changed this quite a bit where, right. you know, these were basically just bad guys in the, mm -hmm. in the game. Whereas in this, they're like, I think that they basically kicked out Fedra. Like they won a that's war what it against looks like. Fedra. Yeah. I think that's what we're being told here. That's that's absolutely the world building that I'm picking up on this because you see various people dressed in Fedra uh, supplied equipment, helmets and vests and things like that. Certainly with the long arms vehicles, right? We see a Humvee drive by at one point, and um, so uh, yeah, and Fedra's gone, and they're using Fedra facilities, right? She's interrogating him in what was a Fedra holding cell, and you have your rights listed there about like visit yeah. to you know visit with a family member, medical care, lawyer. Right. I think that he definitely I don't know if he was just a Fedra informant. I think he was actually working for Fedra directly. 
Like okay. he was one of Fedra's doctors because she said something like, oh, well, now that you're in the cell, it's a problem, but it wasn't a problem when you were on the other side. So I think that he was actually like working for Fedra. He was an employee. All right. That's interesting. Okay. I, I, yeah. Like they, they needed a doctor. He was a doctor and, and right. uh, uh, he certainly was in doing some informant related stuff. And yeah, uh, because she's, because he, he denies ever knowingly saying anything about her brother. Yeah, I'm sure that that was part of his role. I think that, I mean, if you're going through a pandemic, that is clearly, you know, a huge outbreak of some mysterious disease, probably one of the first things you're going to nationalize is healthcare, right? Yeah, So right. I'm sure that FEDRA and, you know, the U.S. government and its remnants sort of just deputized all the medical professionals that were willing to identify themselves in the country. I can tell you, um, you know, just with my, my recent sort of... Uh, dealings with respiratory illnesses without modern medication and modern healthcare, or even a reasonable facsimile there of country doctor and some, you know, uh, you know, some, some herbal, herbal adjacent to stuff. Um, y- you could end up in really bad position, you know, being really sick really fast yeah. uh, without that care. And so imagine being in a QZ um, without some competent medical care around. So yeah, I, I agree. Doctors would be worth their weight in gold, and Fedro would be foolish to not um, put their hands on him in some way. Let's put a pin in that line of thinking. I'll, I'll okay. check back with, with you in a few episodes. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. That's perfect. I like it. Um, all right. So uh, Kathleen goes outside, and the bodies of the people that Joel killed have been brought back. Kathleen theorizes that they were killed by outsiders brought in by Henry. She returns to the cell and executes the doctor. She rallies her troops by blaming Henry and instructing them to find every collaborator and kill them all. Dang, man. Like, she's like, she's on fire here. I think that part of what the loaded meaning behind I'm your doctor was, you know, part of it was this emotional, like, I delivered you, whatever. Mm -hmm. But part of it was also, well, I'm the doctor here. You're Mm going to need me. And so the minute she goes out and and hears, she goes, would a doctor help? (laughs) <laughs> and they say no she's like nice i twist. guess we don't need a doctor Boom. right i think yeah. that's what we were watching i mean it was it was brilliantly timed yes and the the sequence the logical sequence of the build-up because like to shoot somebody like that that takes something and i mean it's taken a lot out of joel right the moral harm that joel has had and we'll see that later in some of the conversations but for her to just to straight up like open it bang right that's yeah and yeah, you're right. That that construction of of how that goes is is mm, chef's kiss. Yeah, he's no longer necessary after that conversation. <laughs> you have been deemed unnecessary to the the cause of we the people, which is spray painted across one of the trucks as they uh, as the militia fans out. And we see scenes of uh, them raiding a number of buildings and houses while Joel and Ellie watch from a safe spot. Yeah, this was uh, these people mean business, right? Yeah, they are armed, and they know what they're doing. Like watching, watching them hit some of those doors with a battering ram and stuff like that. Yeah, they're 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 experienced. Regular raiders are scary, but organized ones are scarier. That's the difference between a uh, yeah between barbarians and uh, Roman uh, legions, right? That's how Rome conquered Europe, right? Organized uh, warfare. All right, Joel asks Ellie if she's all right. Like, not just physically, but is she all right? And then apologizes for putting her into the position of having to shoot someone. 
He tries to be open with her about what it's like to hurt someone, and then he gets frustrated by his own inability to deal with his own emotions, let alone the situation of talking to a teenage kid who's just shot somebody. Yeah. He apologizes, and then she tells him it's not the first time that she's hurt someone. Okay, so that is certainly something that they're hinting at. So I can't go further into that, but... Okay. You know, I think that Joel is learning that she's not just a kid, right? She's Mm -hmm. gone through quite a bit before. She's a fully formed human in some ways. She's got a lot to learn in a lot of other ways, and she's got a lot of growing up to do. But in some ways, she's gone through much more than she should have at this age, like he's saying. But it's already happened before she even met him. I really want to go back and I think maybe just watch this scene because the emotional interplay between them, between her like, hey, this ain't my first rodeo, granddad, and the fact that she's just a kid. And even though she might have done something in the past, she's still a kid and and facing that moral harm. And then Joel dealing with his complex emotions and the stuff that he's done. We're not good people, Tess and, Tess and I trying to be honest and authentic uh, uh, about that and trying to create a... He's reaching out to her in this scene in an emotional way where it's always been Ellie chipping away at his hard exterior. And so this is a real reversal where he's actually seeing her not as cargo, but as a, as a real human being and a real human being who's just a kid who's been put into an impossible situation. Yeah, I think that how he frames it, we all do what we need to do to survive. Uh really gives her a little bit of an out, right? Like, Mm. you needed to kill that guy so that I would survive so that you would survive. Right. Doesn't she say something like, aren't you glad at least that I did it? Maybe that was in this previous scene. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, he should have validated her there. That was Uh a little shitty for him to just, you know, blow past that question. Sure, and just take the gun from her. Like, God damn it, like, give me your gun because you weren't supposed to have that thing. Well, he cools down from that. I think that that's For the sure. point with that. Is his, his gut reaction is to still treat her like a kid, and then he reflects on it and goes, yeah, all right, you might be okay. Which, and then in the, the, the next part of the scene, he reviews her gun handling skills and then instructs her on better techniques. And he asks her to put the gun in her backpack, but she opts to put it in her jacket pocket, her, her jacket pocket. And then he reassures her again before they make their move. So for me, the scene of... of him reviewing how to hold a handgun and where did you learn that Fedra school figures? Like, that was great. <laughs> but then showing her that sort of the proper grip and how to, you know, the, the way that you, you squeeze, squeeze your hands and all that stuff. Like, to me, that that was that parental validation that she really needed, you know, regardless of the fact yeah. that it's about being doing violence, uh, you know, well, I mean, if, if it's an infected person, you're protecting yourself. You know, and you may be protecting yourself against another person, but it's still moral harm. It's still moral hazard. Um, But he's giving her the benefit of his knowledge and his wisdom, not just in theoretical survival stuff, but in practical, you know, she's been asking for a gun the whole damn time. Right. And he's now actually, not not only does he give her the gun back, he's actually showing her how to properly use it. Right. Yeah, I mean... I think that it was better that he grabbed the gun and tried to take it from her to show her that the grip was important rather than just saying, like, now nobody can take yes, it from Yes, yes. Right, I mean, I think that that's such a much better uh, teaching method to demonstrate, show, not tell. Right, yeah, and she laughs even a little bit when she realizes the truth of what he was showing her. Yeah, I mean, he tacitly approved of what she did, so that yeah. was good, and he's taking her more seriously now. So I think those are the big takeaways from this scene. 
All right, Kathleen gets a report from Perry. That's the uh, bearded guy who seems to be her um, uh, number one on the on the paramilitary side of it, I guess you could say. Um, and Perry shows her an abandoned hideout. We see empty cans of food and kid drawings of two superheroes in blue and red. We also learn that there is someone named Sam, and Kathleen instructs Perry to double the guard around their provisions. I am very curious about how this organization was formed. I really want more backstory. It's super fascinating to me. I uh, Again, I think that what they're doing is they're seeding these mysteries for the game players to like be curious about. That's very clever. And, and not just be like, oh, that was a cool way to put, show that from the game, right? Right. And it's all additive, right? It's not right. changing something. It's not taking away something to give you something new. It's maybe changing the flavor of it a little bit, right? It's right. maybe changing some details here and there to make it work better on screen and also to provide you some intrigue that you wouldn't have gotten by replaying the game. I think that's really cool that they're giving the game-playing audience fresh new stuff that isn't um, subtractive, but as you say, additive. I think that's really cool. I'm really glad to hear that from you, being somebody who loves the game so much, you feel like your world is being added to and enlarged as opposed to restricted or just photocopied. Yeah, I mean, I think when I play the game again, I will feel like I know more about these characters rather Mm -hmm. than being like, let me just compare everything. Right. What did you make of the superhero motif? Um, interesting. I think I knew too much in that scene. Okay. And, uh... We'll get to that later. Sounds good. Now, one thing I noticed, something that caught my eye, was that some of the, I don't know what else to call them, uh, the militia, because they're, you know, uh, they're well-regulated, um, but they certainly aren't, you know, a, a formal military in that sense, um, was that there was a lot of red, a lot of red paint on some of the guns, on some of the ammo, on a few things. And then we get the red of the superhero capes. The superheroes are wearing mm. blue, but the capes are red. So I thought that was... Interesting. I don't know if it's going to work out to be something. It's just a little detail that caught my eye. If you've got a theory, let us know. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that, so we'll see. Perry then shows Kathleen another disturbing sight of an undulating floor in the basement of the building. She tells him that they're going to focus on finding Henry first, and then they'll deal with the mysterious floor later. Who do you think Henry is? Well, at that moment or at the end of the... In at general, the end of the season. In, in general, general, with this episode, well, he's some sort of counter uh, revolutionary, revolutionary or something, right? So if they've overthrown Fedra, and then Henry is in opposition to them, so clearly he's in opposition to the the, the current power structure. He's clearly somebody who is un, probably under resourced, um, but is still an existential threat to this organization and to these people. We don't get any sense of how big his organization is. She keeps just naming him Henry and his people. She doesn't say that. Or Henry and their organization. She just keeps saying Henry. And then, like, he's close, right? I can feel him. Like, he's not going to let Sam starve. Like, these are all individual things. And so, to me, they're highlighting the fact that he's an individual, but he's an individual that is an existential threat. Because why would they... Why would they go hunting for him so uh, with such vigor, right? If he's just like, oh, well, you know, he decided to go his own way and killed a couple guards on the way out and stole some food and a gun 
fine, like let him go, right? But no, they are actively hunting this guy and want to take him down. So that's all I can tell. And she's asking the doctor about Henry, like, do you know where he is? So obviously this person's intelligent as well and has some connection to the larger body of, of people that are living in this post-QZ uh, situation. That's an interesting take. I had, I had pictured him as more of a dissenter from within the group uh-huh. because of the way that she seems to know him well. Agreed. It's, Agreed. It's, uh, it's interesting because they've radically changed his backstory from the game, at least it uh-huh. seems like from this point. Okay. Uh, he is a character, so is Sam. They are characters from the game. But uh, they have changed the backstory. Now, they could still do pretty much everything interesting that they do with them in the game with that backstory. But I think it's very fresh for them to change this up and link it to the bandits rather than it being a parallel story. Cool. Nice. Um, It's nightfall and Joel and Ellie break into the high rise that they had scoped out earlier as... Uh, at, at their banter at some point, uh, she says, where would you be without me? And he replies, Wyoming. And then she remarks that she walked right into that one. Again, their banter is happening. They yeah. are starting to give each other a little bit of shit in a friendly way. Yep. They make their way up many flights of stairs. Ellie asks Joel how he knew it was an ambush. And he explains that he'd been on both sides of the same situation. He implicates both Tess and his brother in the uh, doing of bad things, and she asks him if he's killed innocent people. He doesn't answer. So yes, yes, he has killed innocent people. Right. I mean, just about how he's talking about it, right? Like, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. we've been we've been on both sides. Like, of course, he's killed innocent people because they were about to kill him. And it's interesting, like, because Ellie doesn't even react to his non-reaction. Like, I'm wondering, I'm left wondering what going on in her head like how is she processing that right like is she justifying his actions oh you did it because you had to you're surviving you were protecting your own you're you're doing it for family because she you know they have that conversation earlier in the truck like why do you keep going on if if it seems hopeless and uh he talks about you know going on because you take care of family and she's not family she's cargo yeah man does he does he have a dark past? It seems right. Mm. It's uh, he spent a lot of years doing a lot of moral calculations and uh, giving away a lot of his soul, sort of, just to stay on the earth, just to yeah. make sure that he was there for somebody, just to be a protector. Yeah. First Tommy, then Tess, I guess. Yeah. I wonder how much transference of from Sarah to Tommy, you know, he put on that. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, that's. I mean. As far as I know, that's his last family. Right, right. How do you how do you even process that when you've just been through this whole horrible situation? And he really sees himself in the big brother role. Right. All right, they make it up 33 floors and they find an empty apartment to hole up in. Lazy ass 56-year-old, you little shit. <laughs> he re- remarks to her. Kind of brings you back to the scene where uh, Sarah goes, well, you're going to wear diapers. How do you know I don't already? That was such a great line. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I'm really glad that Joel has somebody to like to shoot the shit with uh, in this way again. Yeah. Joel sets up a broken glass perimeter as they settle down and, uh, he asks her about her first time hurting someone. She declines to answer. He doesn't press the matter and he tells her 
He doesn't think it's fair that someone her age has to deal with all this stuff. She asks him if it gets easier as you get older, and he says, no, it doesn't. Yeah, you, you realize when you grow up that you're basically just a larger version of your kid self. Yes, exactly. And that's kind of hard to learn, right? You kind of think that you'll be wiser, and I guess you are a little bit, but you, your general way that you process things doesn't change as radically as you would hope. You know, your, your emotional reactions to things are, yeah, definitely still, you know, a four-year-old or whatever. And I guess it, maybe it's your frontal cortex that just has the ability to restrain you from acting <laughs> out on some of those emotions. Yeah, yeah. We all are an inner child at some capacity. Absolutely. Ellie tells him that she's noticed that he's hard of hearing in his right ear. And he says it's probably due to hearing loss from firing so many guns. And he tells her to stick with the knife. I thought that this was interesting. This goes back to that realism sort of thing. It's like, yeah, you know, you're uh, shooting that many guns without any hearing protection is, you know, definitely going to mess with your hearing over the years. I got to say, Ellie's pretty good with the knife, too. Maybe uh, she should stick with the knife. I mean, and again, I mean, Joel chooses to use a knife Uh at a certain point because probably because he doesn't want people to hear a gunshot coming from there. My headcanon on that was uh, save the ammo. That's true, too. Yeah. That makes sense. Which is pretty brutal when you think about it, because um, I think that was, I don't, I don't, I assume that he was like, I don't want to be too gruesome on his podcast. I know we're rated E, but still, I thought he was going to like, you know, cut his throat or something like that. But I think he stabs him in the chest and in, in the heart. Because when we see his body, was it Brian? I forget his, uh, the kid's name. Um, we see his, his chest, and we see a wound there on his chest, like a knife wound. So I think Joel um, uh, stabbed him there. Well, that's <laughs> yeah, rough. sorry. Thanks for that one. <laughs> this, this got just double E, uh, double explicit. Write in your feedback to T-L-O-U okay. at Sorry, hey, it's not me, it's the show. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting that Ellie was that observant. It reminded me of the scene in Andor, where uh, Andor is breaking down the, you know, who shoots with their left and their rights and, and all of that kind of stuff. Like, that was a really good detail. She's like, yeah, I noticed this thing about you. I think that you're supposed to start getting that she is very smart, right? She is a very intelligent, very thoughtful person. And I think Joel is starting to see that, too. And that is an important part of their relational development. And as she's getting instruction and guidance and that emotional stability from a parental figure, that learning is going to accelerate. Right, she's going to take on more and more, and she's going to feel more and more confident. The hardest thing about teaching someone is giving them the desire to learn, and I think Ellie has finally woken up a little bit with that. Mm, interesting. Yeah, her her own innate sense of wanting to learn is yeah, right, is being activated. You can't teach that to someone; that has to develop naturally. Interesting. Yeah, she asks him another pun question, and they share a laugh, and then we see Joel's watch as he s- tries to suppress his mirth. So. Um, I love the fact that his wrist hand is right there under his face. And as he's trying to like not crack up and right there, he's like, you know, shut up, go to sleep, get a whatever. His watch is right there. And that's a, that striking reminder of the pain of his loss of his daughter, who he used to have this kind of quality time with. Yeah. He doesn't want to get attached to someone new, right? Every time he attaches to somebody, he loses them. I mean, Tommy even went away. Yeah. Test died. Right. 
Sarah, Tess, Tommy, how many people can he lose before he's just like, I'm just not getting attached ever again? And here's this, this again, going back to this subtle filmmaking that they do as they fall asleep laughing. Ellie wakes Joel up and then we see them being hailed at gunpoint by Henry and Sam. So we see the scene of him like really actually having an honest laugh. Like they're having, uh, uh, you know, that there's nothing like the laughter of trying to go to sleep and then like your friend or your, your family member or whatever, like somebody farts or tells a funny joke and you just like, <laughs> you know, it all comes out and you're side splitting laughing. So here's Joel actually laughing for the first time in how many years? And then we see him with that watch right there. And then that reminds us of, of his past. And then for them to be being held at gunpoint, like wham, like talk about like setting stakes and then triggering that trap to get us like such good filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, the first time he lets his guard down this whole series. Yes. They're held at gunpoint. They, yeah. it, it compromises them. And, and like 33 flights up in a building with a glass, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, perimeter thing around them. And yeah, he still, he got got. I'm surprised Ellie didn't hear the glass or maybe they got in a different way. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's my headcanon is that they, they were, uh, Henry and Sam were like observing them probably, uh, for a while. And then they know the city so well. And I think Henry is such a smooth operator that he's like, you know, he knows how to move around these spaces and, 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 you know, he's, they've survived for a long time being hunted, right? Right. Um, by the, the militia people, um, that he's probably really good at the, at the stealth mission stuff. And so to get the drop on them um, didn't surprise me in that regard. They did the Spider-Man thing through the vents, probably. Totally. And then I guess Sam, right? I guess it's going to be Sam who's got sort of red mask paint on his face. Mm-hmm. which harkens back to the um, superhero drawings that we saw on the wall. They were on the walls and on the pieces yeah. of paper. They were like all over that room. Yeah, I think, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, I think that was supposed to be his drawings, right? Yeah, agreed. Yep. And then if you look at the drawings too, like the skin is colored correctly, you know, relative to like what you could have with the, the pens. And then there's two of them and one's bigger than the other. And yeah, like it's um, a very, very strong uh, connected. Connective tissue, I guess you could call it. All right, we fade out to an acoustic version of True Faith, uh, sung by Lot Kestner, I believe is how you pronounce her name, a Seattle-based singer-songwriter. And this is a cover of the 1987 New Order single by the same name, True Faith. Nice. Yeah, I have not heard this song. I have not heard the the previous song that we talked about earlier in the episode either. <clears throat> <laughs> I can't wait till the soundtrack comes out so you can hear all these things. Well, I probably won't listen to it then either. <laughs> Dear Lord. Um, this song was released in 1987. Uh, it peaked at number 32 on the top, U- top 100 U.S. charts. Um, and I can say that this was a big, big song in the goth world and the new wave world. Like at the, you know, we had underage dance clubs in, uh, in my town. And uh, that was a big thing. And this was like a huge dance song that you would um, you'd hit the floor to when it, when it came out. Um, ostensibly, it's about drug use and addiction. Like that's sort of a surfer's thing. And they've talked about it. The New Order uh, band members have talked about it a little bit. Some things have changed in the song in terms of some lyrics so that they could get it onto the radio without any worry. 
Um, but it's got some other alternate interpretations as well. And one of those is it's a song about growing up and being changed by the course of life. And so I was really trying to puzzle, why would they choose this song? What, is that te- what are they telling us with this song? Hmm. And one thing that po- that's possible is that um, they're linking some of the lyrics to this whole thing of you know, innocence and age and being young and then being shaped by a course of events over time. And so some of the lyrics are, when I was a very small boy, very small boys talk to me. Now that we've grown up together, they're afraid of what they see. That's the price that we all pay. And the value of destiny comes to nothing. I can't tell you where you're going. I guess there's just no way of knowing. I used to think that the day would never come. I'd see uh, delight in the shade of the morning sun. My morning sun is the drug that brings me near to the childhood I lost, replaced by fear. So there's a whole bunch of drug paraphernalia, metaphor stuff going on here and in the whole song. But when I was reading the lyrics, these are what I picked up here uh, was very small boy, you know, what people see now, they're afraid of me, they're afraid of what they see. This is the price we pay. Um, you know, destiny, what does that mean? There's just, just no way we know that where we're going to go. And then there's this childhood that I've lost that's been replaced by fear. Well, you have these two pairs of, you know, parent-child yeah, who are teaching the younger person, the, yeah. the child, to hold somebody at gunpoint or shoot them. They're, you know, passing on this loss of in- innocence. They are, mm. again, replacing it by fear, like you said. Teaching her that you have to put glass in front of a door to make sure nobody's going to come in. Teaching Mm. her that you can't even light a fire because people will come to rob you. Or worse, because, you know, they're not going to stop at that, Joel says. Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense now. But I have a question for you. Please. How many Patreon subscribers do we need to get to to convince you (laughs) to release a video of you dancing in the 80s? I don't know that one exists. We We didn't have mobile phones back then. Okay. I think I have somewhere in my collection, I actually worked for one of these nightclubs, and I think um, I actually have a picture of me. My hair had grown out a little bit, but I had it sort of sort of half shaved on one side, and um, I think I'm wearing my, my pullover, uh, uh, what do you call it, a sweatshirt-y thing, thing that has the, the company on it. Um, I'm trying to think if I've, I've got that. I don't know. I think we'd have to get to maybe like 50 or something. That, that's low. That's low. I feel like it should be 100. All right. Well, you run the bidding. I'll just supply the photo. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Here, here, the auction of the David photo. Of David's innocence. <laughs> <laughs> when was it replaced by fear, though? Uh, it was not replaced. It was certainly not fearful then. It was, uh, it was eager um, welcoming a, of life. I think probably my real fear is uh, after becoming a parent. That's probably when I f- felt terror. Not at being a parent, but at trying to protect my child from the world kind of fear. You and Joel should have a talk. We, we need to. We need to. I'd, I'd drink a, a beer with Joel. That is for sure. All right, John, that ends our scene by scene. Let's take a little break. And then when we come back, we'll get into some feedback and then programming notes.
And we're back. All right. Uh, first up, we've got Lauren from Dallas. She says, hey, guys, first, I love your podcast and enjoy listening to it so much. However, last week, this week, as she writes, um, one of you, I'm not exactly sure who, it was me, Lauren, David, continually used the word invalid to describe the character of Frank in the last section that we see them in. She says, the word literally is spelled as in, meaning not, and valid. Basically, you're saying that a person who has a neurological condition which has disabled them is not a valid human. It's interesting, Lauren. I, um, when I was writing my outline, I did sort of like struggle for a minute of like, what's the correct term? And I, I wasn't sure if disabled was the right term and if that was sort of accurate. Um, and then I was like looking in the dictionary and I looked at, at invalid, but you know, obviously the dictionary isn't going to tell me the etymological structure of the word. I'm just looking for a, a basic meaning. So she goes on to note that someone with a disability, as somebody with a disability, she's keenly aware of, of these sort of word choices and the real impact on the way that they shape and think uh, uh, about how that it, it shapes our thought and our actions towards others. And I think she did us a real solid here by letting us know, you know, that the invalid is actually to devalidate somebody else. She notes that the better word choice to describe Frank's condition would be disabled or having a disabling condition. She says, I know some people have a hard time with the word disabled as I think, uh, as they think it is in some way a bit rude, but truly it's the best word to describe people who are unable to do something due to a medical condition. She obviously says that, you know, her intention was to be informative and helpful. And yeah, Lauren, it was really uh, good feedback and I really appreciate it. And it's something that I wasn't uh, aware of. And it makes sense when you point it out. Uh, so thank you for writing in. And anybody, like if you ever hear us hit a sour note like that, please write in, let us know and, and make sure that we, um, we get your point of view so that we can be better podcasters, I guess. Um, and, you know, send in your regular feedback, too, because, Lauren, I think we'd love to hear your, your take on the show so far. John, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, you know, when we did the White Lotus, we did a, a line in the intro where we said, you know, we're going to get into some sensitive topics here. Mm -hmm. uh, because that was the nature of the show, right? Yeah. Because that was a show that dealt with, you know, sexism, you know, sexual assault, harassment, things like that. And so we put in this thing where we said, please write in if, uh, you know, if, if we can learn something. Right. Uh, I did not expect to encounter something like that in this show, but uh -huh. apparently we did. Yeah. So Lauren, <laughs> very sorry. I should have caught it in editing too, and uh, we'll do better. Yeah. Thanks. All right, next up, we've got Alan. So Alan tried to send us a voicemail uh, using our new feature, our voicemail feature, a while back, but then I missed it on the last episode. Just too many things sort of going on. So um, he sends in a voicemail. So let's listen to that now. You guys are right. Episode three was remarkable, moving, and affecting. I watched the show after listening to the podcast because spoilers aren't a concern for me and as I said I was relying on you to continue keep me continuing to watch the show I thought episode two was a little too gory for my tastes and I suspect episode four and beyond will be will also be but three was really remarkable uh, well done and uh, surprisingly affecting and it does set us up for the rest of the journey that they're taking so First of all, I'm surprised that somebody's listening to us just to get the, the plot before they watch it. I mean, <laughs> thank you, good Alan. For, good for you, Alan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, uh, I don't know if we're the best way to experience the plot for the first time, but we certainly are a way. 
Well, it's our pleasure for sure. And and thank you for, for um, sending the voicemail as well. Definitely. Yeah, this show, regarding the gore, I don't think that The Last of Us as a franchise really wants to focus on the gore. I think it is more about the horrors of sort of how cruel people can be to each other. I don't think that, you know, obviously the clickers, the, the infected in general, can be a little bit gory, right? Yeah. But it is not something that is leaned on as the main part of the show. As you noted, like the episode three was a super character focused episode. And I think that episode four, while it had violence, was much more focused on the characterization and how that violence affected the characters and how that violence defined characters in their own minds than it was focused on the violence itself. Like having Ellie go behind the wall is a great example. Right. Instead of showing the second kill happen. Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that you'll have a good time. If you're if gore was the problem, I don't think that you'll have a super bad time. Now, that being said, I haven't seen the other episodes. They could lean into it. So good luck, Alan, and thanks for hopping along our podcast. All right, next up, we've got Brian R. And he writes in to say, I started listening to your podcast for Rings of Power and greatly appreciate your efforts, your insights, and your perspective on the shows you cover. It really adds to my appreciation and enjoyment of each show. Thanks. Thank you, Brian. Um, that's exactly our intent. <laughs> that's exactly what we hope for. So good to hear that feedback. And um, I don't know, it feels, feels good to know that we're, we're uh, achieving what it is that we sent out uh, to do. A few quick questions and thoughts, he says. Why do your Kaleidoscope episodes say The Last of Us in the title? I don't plan on watching Kaleidoscope, but I fear I might be missing some Last of Us content. John, can you address that? Because I think it has to do with the podcast title and not the episode titles. Yeah, so the the reason that it says The Last of Us in our title is just for searchability. This will change back to just the Lorehounds after this season. Uh, also, you know, we're not ready to talk about the changes we're doing yet, but we're going to have some new feeds coming out that'll be more show specific. So this should be less of a, a changing title going forward. Right. So the podcast feed itself is has the Lorehounds and then it has the Last of Us in that. So like John said, so that people can other people can find us when they're searching for Last of Us related content. But then if you look at the episode by episode title, it should say the show name first along with the episode number and then I believe the sh- the episode's title itself. So we were trying to be very uh, explicit with that since we were working on a single feed. And as John has alluded to, that's going to change in the future. And um, so, yeah, really just look at the, don't, don't worry so much about the, uh, our, our main umbrella name, look at the episode by episode title. And what, what, what episode is this? Episode four? So we've only got four Last of Us episodes Five. out there. Five. Five more, because we're doing nine episodes this season. Right. Oh, in total. But I meant we're, we're on episode four. Right. So we have five more. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Who's on first? <laughs> All right. As a PC, he goes on, as a PC gamer, I was delighted to see that The Last of Us Part 1 is being released on Steam in a month on March 3rd. I thought other listeners might want to know, as it has been on PlayStation only historically. I have mine on a wish list and look forward to playing it soon. John? Well, I have bad news for you, Brian. The Last of Us PC port has been delayed a little bit. It's coming oh, out no. March 28th now, but that's only a few more weeks away, so that's not so bad. Game delays can be like years sometimes, but uh-huh. no, they're, they're just going a few weeks. So a little bit longer, but I think it's worth the wait. Um, he goes on, I read up on Cordyceps and was excited to see a new take on zombie movies. We are too, Brian. Absolutely. Uh, I have been disappointed that they eliminated the spores, 
but appreciate that it might not work as well on t- on a TV show. Yeah, absolutely. That's like one of those shippy things where it's like the medium doesn't necessarily support the original design, so they got to figure out their way through that. Uh, he goes on. Unfortunately, what is left is just like all other zombies. They chase you, they bite you, and eventually you turn. I'm not buying the tendril roots at all. I just don't see fungus suddenly being able to instantly communicate and coordinate better than platoons of marines. Yeah, I mean, I, I take the point seriously that maybe they should have had a more creative substitution if they uh-huh. were going to take out the spores. Because the spores were interesting and I think unique among zombie plot lines. I don't think it would have been as bad as they say if they would have just done the spore thing. Because uh-huh. basically all it is in the game is you're in an enclosed space and they Poof. say, hey, there's a there's a, a clicker attached to the wall there, a dead clicker. And the, the fungus has been growing for years, so the air is filled with spores, so let's put on our gas masks. Right. I think that would have been fine. Especially because it's not gonna, like it's going to be all the time, right? You, right. Can, you can say, like, okay, this was a spore area, and we went through it, and now just don't have spores in this next area. I think that's right. fine. I, I, again, like, I don't think it was as big of a problem as the showrunners thought, and I, I don't know if I fully agree with their decision to change it. That's one of the few things that I think was perhaps a weaker change. But I don't hate the tendrils. I think that it's, it's an interesting addition as well, the, the fungal, the wood wide web. <laughs> yeah. So something we kind of bypassed in our conversation, I just now realized, is that we didn't really talk about the undulating floor in the basement of that building. Oh, yeah. What the heck is that? Yeah. So obviously, if, you're, if that's your response, then that's not something that's spoilery from the game. No, that's new. I don't know okay. what the heck that is. I am... I mean, my instant thought was that it's fungal in nature, right? Because the way that Perry reacts, like he's got his gun up, he's ready, like... I was half expecting him to be expecting like a uh, clicker or something to pop up out of that, you know, uh, patch because, you know, and him to start shooting at something um, because he was act- he was responding to an active threat, not just a, a passive like, oh, this is bad. He was ready to go to town on that th- on whatever came out of that that room. They are very creative about different kinds of infected in the game. Uh-huh. And we have seen only a glimpse of what they have to offer. Right. And so I'm hoping next episode we will get a broader look at these infected. Ooh, yeah, that makes me think of something. I, I don't want to say anything, but uh, yeah, I saw an image of something. So yeah, maybe. Yeah, the, the next time on spoils Which I did not watch. Bit, I, think. I yeah. did not watch, but I did see something today because we have next week, because of the Super Bowl, they're going to be airing episode five on Friday instead of on Sunday. So we yeah. should make sure we note that in the, in the programming notes which will change our, our output a little bit. But anyway, um, yeah, Brian, I, I understand, you know, the, the, the change and, and how that can be uh, less palatable. Um, you know, from what I've read and what I understand about funguses, though, the, these tendrils spreading through forests are a real thing, and then they've just sort of amped them up for show horror, right? So they took something real and then amplified it so that they can get the entertainment value from it. Yeah. He goes on uh, with his last point. You guys often talk about the details of show construction. Yes, I do. <laughs> a lot. Uh, and I like those insights. Choices in lighting, transitions, editing, sound might bore many people, but not me. Well, Brian, I'm glad that I have another production details fan out there. It's not like John's not a fan of those things. It's just... Um, I like it. I just like letting you, you do. do it. Oh, thank you. Well, that's very <laughs> generous of you. Thank you. Uh, he concludes, overall, I'm enjoying the show. I think it's well written has high production values, and has some really good acting. 
I haven't liked everything Pedro Pascal has done, but I think he's been fantastic as Joel so far. Totally agree with you on that point. Again, thanks for your efforts and expertise. Glad you're having a well-deserved success as podcasters and hope it continues and grows. Well, thank you, Brian. Yes, thanks, Brian. All right, so let's do our programming notes. So first of all, we have our Patreon shoutouts. We have our Lore Master patrons. That's our highest tier. And uh, it's $10 a month. I Again, I can't believe anybody signs up for it, but it's a growing list of Avengers, really. That's, what are we uh, going to do when there's like so many names that we can't say them all? In an episode? We're going to extend the podcast 10 minutes. <laughs> so, here we go. Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., David W., Michelle E. and our newest lore master, Brian P. Thank you so much for all your support and to the rest of our patrons. It is helping us tremendously keep going on this and to expand uh, what we're doing. Thank you, Brian. Uh, yeah, uh, it totally, yeah, it, it, there's material costs in, in producing a podcast. And so your guys' support really means a lot. Definitely. All right. So as for what we're doing next, as David, you mentioned up front, the MCU podcast, MC Universe with you and Jean, is being delayed a bit. We are not sure of the exact date, but we'll keep you posted on that. That'll come out on this feed as well. The Last of Us is coming out two days early on the on episode five, uh, as you mentioned, for the Super Bowl. So we're going to have that podcast out sometime this weekend. Not sure when, but that'll come out early, and we're really excited to do that one. Also, we guested on Maester Anthony's podcast, uh, his Electric Boogaloo read-along with the Song of Ice and Fire series. We hopped on to... Uh, a Clash of Kings to talk about the Theon chapter, his first chapter in this book where he heads on to Pike and goes to see his dad. That was a lot of fun. And also, Maester Anthony has another podcast called Cocoons of Horror, where he and his co-host Steve check out old horror movies. They have a lot of fun with it, so definitely check them out. More on the Lorehounds. We just put out a Star Wars Bad Batch episode. We talked about the first five episodes of the season. We'll do another one later in the season or perhaps at the end to talk about the rest of it. Uh, Second Breakfast, our Patreon exclusive, where we take questions. We talk about a breakfast food and what we're watching, playing, reading outside of podcasting. That's going to come out February 12th on our Patreon exclusively. Silmarillion Stories is going to close out the month on February 27th. We're going to be covering Of Aule and Yavanna, talking about dwarves and Ents and oh my. Lastly, we have a new project coming up with Marilyn Pukilo, which you'll recognize from our Tolkien coverage and maybe even our end or feedback coverage. We're going to be covering A Wizard of Earthsea, the first book in the Earthsea cycle by Ursula Le Guin. And we're going to be doing the first four books of that series, at least. And we're going to start in March with the first book. So read that now. And in March, you'll be able to hear our, first of all, spoiler-free and then our spoilery take on it. I'm really excited for this. I uh, I just um, found my old original copy, and uh, you know it was uh, it was uh, kind of fell down a little nostalgia hole uh, reading. So um, I'm really excited for this one. Yeah, I read it recently, and that was my first time reading it, and I I enjoyed it. I have interesting thoughts about it. I don't okay. know if I enjoyed it as much as I would have in 1968. Right, but it's still good. It's still good. Anyway, I think that's all we have. Thank you again for all our listeners. We'll be back this weekend with another episode, and we will see you soon. 
The Lorehounds Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>